good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, a very curious edition, a very experimental edition of The Other Side of Midnight tonight. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying something tonight that we have not tried before, and I'm hoping that it's going to work. Uh, the guest that I wanted overwhelmingly to do this evening is my dear friend, uh, Stan Tannen. Unfortunately, um, Stan can't do the show because he's no longer in this dimension. Stan died on January 30th of 2022 after a um, significant illness. Uh, when I did the show with him way back when in 2015, which we'll get to momentarily, uh, he was not well then, and unfortunately, um, he died. However, due to the magic of recordings and digital media, the show that we did together, the really important show on his extraordinarily important work, uh, we have been able to resurrect it from the archives, at least uh, the, the, the vital part of it. We could not locate the imaging so tonight when we refer to things in radio with pictures uh what you need to do is to go to my items and uh not during the show because it really it really doesn't make much difference to listen to those and watch those items during the show just listen to the flow of the conversation and then we have videos we have links to stan's meru foundation so you can go back and look at the imagery the diagrams by which Stan arrived at his truly remarkable geometric conclusions. So this is going to be a real radio show tonight, except for some of the things that I'm going to do in the next half hour. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try to give you some context as to why I thought it really important to resurrect this really in intriguing show from the archives and play it tonight as if Stan were still here. And when you listen, it's eerie. It's so stunningly eerie. It's like this show, given what's going on in the world, particularly in the Middle East, it's like this show is going on tonight, live. Because what Stan says, and Lavana, his uh, wife and research partner and uh, colleague and every other approbation you can think of in a positive sense uh, joins us, you know, you would think that this was a live show because of what's going on on this very, very sick planet tonight, particularly in the Middle East, in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip. So be that as it may, let me, let me kind of try to presage this with, with some framing. The way this has come about is, as I've been watching for the last two weeks since October 7th, the insanity progressing uh, in equal measure, it seems to me, there in the Middle East. Yes, a horrible, tremendously shattering tragedy of unimaginable description and proportions occurred because of Hamas on the 7th of October. That does not explain the equally insane response of Netanyahu's government to have bombarded Gaza with something like 6,000 
5,000 aerial bombs of various powers and uh, uh, capacities in the space of just a week. In previous wars between Israel and its neighbors who do not want it to exist, like Hamas, um, it's it's been a far less fevered and frantic pace. If I remember one number correctly, the the amount of munitions that we dropped in Afghanistan on the Taliban in a month did not equal what Israel has meted out to the Palestinians confined to that narrow strip of land a few miles across and 25 miles long hugging the Mediterranean coast there on the west coast of Israel. It is an insane response. In fact, it's so insane that in place of normal news items, I have simply, in the modality of everything, everywhere, all at once, which has become kind of like the operative um, watchword of this program, all these disparate things that are crazy and do not... uh, they make no sense, they should not be occurring, and they're all occurring at once, fit under that rubric, everything, everywhere, all at once. Which, of course, includes this insane war. And I do not know, and as you'll listen to Stan and me uh, discuss the meaning, the extraordinary meaning of his seminal discoveries, and I quote several scholars who have looked at Stan's work over the last 30 or so years and have come up with glowing accolades for his scholarship, his discipline, his rigor, the fact that when Stan says something, and there are many times during the conversation you'll hear him temporize, because as good scientists do, they don't want to make final pronouncements until the last erg of information has been encoded, analyzed, and confirmed. He is so humble and and gentle in what he how he describes what he has found i'm a little more out there as i am wont to do anyway it is so appropriate as the solution with a capital s to what is going on in the mid-east tonight and tomorrow morning and the next morning and all that uh, i am just praying that the combined focused energies and consciousness of everyone listening to this show and making it go viral, because we're going to post this show on the Other Side of Midnight homepage in its unexpurgated form without having to go through the vicissitudes of Club 19.5, because this information that we're going to discuss tonight deserves to be broadcast to the world. And when we get into the latter part of the show, remember, it's only two hours because we recorded it back when I was literally on Arts Network or Keith Rowland's network. It actually was Arts. And it's only two hours. So to fill the remaining three hours of our time tonight, I'm going to do about a half hour uh, pre-view of what we're talking about and why now, you know, years later, this, was, this show was recorded with Stan on December 11th, uh, 2015. A lot of water has gone under the bridge between then and now. But again, if you listen to this show and you miss the fact that it's a replay 
of the one and only show I was able to do with Stan while he was alive, you would think that we were literally broadcasting live tonight in view of what is going on in Gaza, which I did not know until I had previewed the whole show. And there's all kinds of very important and strategically significant data points within our two-hour conversation. So what I'm going to do is to do the first half hour as a book end or a frame around the two-hour content of what Stan and I discuss. And then toward the end of the show, in the last half hour, give or take, I'll come back in and I'll have some uh, closing thoughts. And then I'm going to replay a portion of the interview underscoring the most significant part, I believe, of our conversation, which relates to everyone listening, everyone following on social media, and most critical, the one thing that might change, which seems almost uh, inevitable now in terms of Israel's invasion of the Gaza Strip. If you really believe your mantra that you are trying to abide by the rules of war, but you didn't know there were rules of war, did you? Then what Israel has been doing past now 3,500 Palestinians having died under this onslaught aerial bombardment, um, it really bestokes the uh, background to that single cartoon I've, I've replicated in item number one, which is headed simply revenge. And revenge is not what is required at this point in time. Yes, what Hamas did to uh, Israelis uh, on, on the morning of October 7th was insane. It was horrible. It was evil. It was outright unexpurgated evil over and over again. However, that does not make right the idea of killing twice as many Palestinians, including here and there, I guess, Hamas, in an unbridled campaign of aerial bombardment, which in terms of the population of, of the you know, Gaza Strip, half of them are children. And as you've been watching the videos from outside sources through various media all over the internet and all over television, more than half of the victims of this bombardment are children. This is not the way that Israel should proceed. As outside voices, including our president, President uh, Joe Biden, physically making a dangerous trip in the middle of a war zone to the Middle East, to Tel Aviv, to tell Netanyahu face-to-face, this is not going to solve anything. And when I listen to Stan's work, and the presentation of the meaning of his work at the very end of the show, of the two hours, it struck me overwhelmingly that I had made the correct decision tonight to play his interview, to play his work, because eerily and very depressingly, between 2015, just before Christmas in December, all those years ago, and tonight, nothing seems to have changed except things have gotten worse. 
So let me give some context. Um, in the milieu that everything is happening everywhere now all at once, you just have to look at what's going on in Washington. And that's the second item in my list in Radio with Pictures tonight, because it basically has a New Yorker cartoon, which is rather apropos in terms of comment vis-a-vis what's going on in the U.S. House of Representatives. First, for the first time in the 240, is it nine years or three years, whatever, it's almost a quarter century of the existence of the United States, one of one side of the House, one of the parties, the Republicans, fired the Speaker of the whole House. Because when Republicans or Democrats elect a Speaker, he or she is not just in charge of one half of the House, the party that won more seats during the um, congressional election than the other party. The Speaker elected by one side of the House under current um, ritual, I can say that, is actually elected to govern and control and steer the entire House, which means for the first time in U.S. history, after 17 days of this craziness, because the Republicans cannot agree among themselves on who will lead them and the rest of the House, tonight the U.S. government is broken. Let me repeat that. For the first time in 200 and almost 250 years, the U.S. government tonight, in terms of representative government, elected representatives in the House of Representatives representing 770,000 people in each district, is broken. It cannot represent its constituency tonight, and there does not seem to be a soft landing in sight. Even last night on Friday when the House, without a speaker, just up and went home. You know, the, the, the Speaker Pro Tem basically dismissed the House. The Speaker Pro Tem, it turns out, for arcane reasons having nothing to do with the Constitution and everything to do with House rules, which of course were enacted uh, because the Republicans won the House in the uh, elections last November. That's where Kevin McCarthy became the Republican Speaker after 15 votes, 15 different efforts to bring him to the fore. And then two weeks ago, uh, is it, no, it's 17 days ago, he was summarily dismissed because he caved to the radical wing of his party, gave of, uh, Matt Gates a universal vote of one to call the question and to vacate the chair, meaning to get rid of, to fire the speaker. And now for the last 17 days, going on 18, we have had no speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Therefore, no matter what legislation is agreed upon with bilateral agreement in the Senate and then sent over to the House, nothing can be done. Apparently, the rules were so written that the Speaker pro tem is not like the equivalent of a vice president, where if something happens to the president, the vice president takes over and the presidency is still functioning. And we saw this happen back during the uh, era of Ronald Reagan, 
We saw it happen during the uh, administration of George Bush. There have been times in modern history where a president has been incapacitated and the vice president seamlessly took over. Well, not this time in the House of Representatives. They are, we are, stuck unless the Republicans can agree or unless they do something outside the box, which is turned to their Democratic colleagues, just five Republicans turning to the Democratic colleagues, proposing someone who's sane and rational and represents both sides of the House, united government in an era where we need more unity than we need separation. God help us. Until that happens, based on the dozen or so that after the uh, second nominee for speaker, after um, uh, Steve Calise, uh, Jim Jordan, went down in flames with three votes, where every vote he lost members and wound up with the fewest votes for speaker in, I believe, the history of the U.S. House of Representatives. This private vote in the conference committee uh, yesterday afternoon decided they would open the floor to new designations, new nominations for election for speaker. And so we've got now about a dozen members of the House on the Republican side again because of the way the House under the rules is divided. And we all know what Abraham Lincoln said about divided houses, right? Anyway, until these Republican members can reach some kind of consensus and agreement and put up a candidate who can garner 217 votes in a House of 435 members, nothing can go forward. And there are huge things that need to go forward, not the least of which is what's still occurring in Ukraine. There's a war. And what is occurring tonight in Israel? There's another war. And nothing, including other potential critical legislation about the southern border or about giving more money to Taiwan so that the Chinese communists know that there is no inroad there. In other words, business must go on. And oh, did I mention the budget? There is a ticking clock in terms of the budget for the entire United States. The, the authorization, the so-called continuing resolution, it lapses in the first week in November. And the clock is, is rigorously and irrevocably and inexorably counting down to another data point where unless the House gets its act together, unless the Republicans elect a speaker or five Republicans decide to create something which is desperately needed, which is a bilateral government where a speaker is agreed upon by Republicans and Democrats and progress and business can move forward in tens of days. The government runs out of money, major portions close down, military you know, uh, members of all the branches Army, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, Air Force, Space Force, all of it comes to a shuddering halt and people need to serve, but they will not get paid. This is no way to run the world's oldest democracy.
No way. Yet that seems to be what's going on, which, of course, uh, brings me to my second item for tonight, which is, again, this New Yorker cartoon, which, for those of you who don't have access to the Internet, has two clowns watching uh, television, and one of them says about the situation in the House, stop comparing House Republicans to clowns. And the second clown says, yeah, it's insulting. I mean, sometimes cartoons really make the point. So, item number three. The backdrop to our conversation tonight, Stands in Mind, is a book that took him decades, despite a lot of urging by a lot of his friends and colleagues, me probably at the head of the list. I kept telling him over and over again, Stan, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. In these days of, of videos that come and go, of social media that's nothing but an exchange of vitriol and hate, of people that have no where to turn for calibrated, reliable truth, a book, a very detailed work of substance, of background, of research, of documentation, of comparing various scholarship, various academic precedents, uh, in other words, real research, is the only way we can get in front of a basically overwhelmed public that are now being pulled in far too many directions. Uh, a work of substance. And so Stan's book, in item number three, I linked to the Barnes & Noble page, uh, because the other Amazon pages, for some reason, came up in Spanish. I have no idea why my uh, uh, computer is selecting Spanish, and I figured I wouldn't put people through the uh, you know, agony of trying to translate in Google Translator a Spanish website. I have no idea why, when you uh, do a search, um, a Spanish website for Amazon keeps coming up. If someone can enlighten me, I will be very grateful. Anyway, I chose Barnes & Noble. It's available on many, many booksellers. It's available on Amazon, which you can find an English version. It's a crucial book, the title of which is The Alphabet That Changed the World. And what Stan describes toward the end of our discussion tonight is that, in fact, in Hebrew, in the Judaic tradition, that, that uh, title also means simultaneity in that it's an alphabet that will change the world or could if enough people put enough energy into making enough people aware of the stunning and global paradigm changing research scholarship embedded in Stan's book. So you're going to look for, when you have time, I wouldn't do it during the show because you want to focus on every word. Uh, it's amazing. I listened after two, no, more than two years, since 2015. Hadn't heard the show since then. And every single word could be uttered live tonight. That's how incredibly relevant his work, even though he's no longer with us physically, I know from my own experience, and I know it's not good science to hold up your own experience as anything, but I know from personal experience with Robin that Stan is out there, up there, over there, wherever there is, 
and he's watching very carefully what we do tonight. So, be that as it may, uh, let me move you to the next three items, because I'm not going to interrupt the show. But when we refer to uh, graphics or images that he painstakingly has uh, presented for his first show back in 2015, in which have disappeared into that, you know, all-seeing wastebasket in the sky. You can reconstruct what we're talking about by either going to the links, which are item four and five and six in my items, and they are clearly labeled. Uh, some of them are like uh, 20 years old. That's kind of like the youngest of the more ancient research covered in his in his uh, lexicon. You can click on those. I would recommend you wait till the end of the show because you don't need to see the diagrams to follow the logic of what we're talking about. And if you turn your attention away, it will probably detract from the really important paradigm that you need to listen to every word and every nuance because this is very dense stuff. And I know that I've, you know, been party to Stan's work for decades, and every time I listen to his presentations, I learn new stuff. That's how layered and how dense and how meaningful and important Stan's work is. So I would hold off looking at any of the video links. You might want to go to the uh, Mayru website, which, of course, is there right next to his uh, links. If you look at uh, Fast Links to Bios under the banner at the top of the guest page, just click on that. That will take you to Stan's page where we have his background, links to the Mayru Foundation, and uh, his full bio is also linked uh, under his very short bio on our guest page. So let's see, we've got about, if I look here carefully, we've got about five minutes, four minutes or so, till the first break. So what we'll do is I'll play break music, I'll play, you know, one of our uh, multiple, um, uh, what would I call it, commercials. They're not really commercials, they're actually more like, uh, um, oh, they're, they're really promos. They're really advertisements for something which I think is important, which, of course, is getting more people to listen to this show. Because the only way this show stays on the air is if you subscribe to Club 19.5. And when you do that, we can pay the bills. If you don't do that, we can't. And the show ultimately, given even the infusions that I've been making over the years, and others have as well, it cannot stay on the air. So if you like what you hear tonight, spread the word. Talk to your family, talk to your friends, you know, uh, put it on social media, you know, put it on um, uh, Elon Musk's uh, X or Twitter page. Do whatever you can to get more and more people to look into uh, what we're trying to accomplish. Because let me tell you one interesting thing. The things that got me to really focus really hard on Stan Tennant's work to really hone in was when I'd gone through the geometry and the background and the letter forms and the tetrahedral uh, geometric reconstructions because they're part of the algorithm that allowed Stan to make these stunning breakthroughs. I went through all of that 
And then simultaneously, I'm pursuing my own Sidonia research. And the bingo, the aha, the, as Art would say, ding, 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 came when I found the same geometry on Mars, the same geometry at Sidonia that Stan was describing and illustrating in decoding these Hebraic letter forms and texts. And that, of course, opens up an extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary set of possibilities, some of which we will discuss at the end of the next two hours. So everyone kind of, you know, take a break, um, lean back, turn up the volume just a bit, and listen to something really extraordinary right after this message. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And so, from 2015, via the Wayback Machine, I give you Stan Tenen. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Other Side of Midnight. I'm your host, Richard C. Hoagland, and this morning I have a surprise for you. I know I promised the surprise a little earlier, but uh, as they used to say at this time of year, better late than never, and please don't get me started on the 12 days of Christmas because, well, that's a whole other show. Uh, before I introduce my guest this morning, uh, I do want to say one thing about uh, this, this uh, latest fear over art. Apparently, Art had another episode of somebody shooting something at him uh, last night. And that's about all I know. I know he's fine. I know police were called. I know that he decided to take the night off to recuperate from, you know, whatever happened. And that, uh, But physically, he is fine. I must say that this pattern is disturbing. We are living in very disturbing times. And... The thing that we're going to be talking about this morning is not to give in to the disturbing times. In fact, we're actually going to be talking about some modalities that are the exact opposite, that are, that are basically the cure 
for disturbing times. But we will get to that in a while. Um, how do I how do I characterize Stan Tennant? Stan Tennant and I met very serendipitously, oh, something like 30-plus years ago at an institute in California called the Stanford Research Institute, which is a private think tank south of San Francisco on the peninsula, uh, not far from Stanford itself. And the reason we met is that we both had a colleague there, Dr. Lambert Dolphin, who had a very eclectic series of interests And it turns out that at the same time that he was intrigued with the idea that there might be an artificial civilization on Mars, he was also very intrigued with the idea that there might be an interesting meta-message starting in the text of Genesis that could be resolved and decoded mathematically and geometrically, which is basically the thesis of my friend and colleague Stan Tennant's work for the last many, many decades. Um... I can do no better to characterize what we're going to talk about this morning than to begin with the idea of how Genesis preserves a science of consciousness, a term that we've talked about on this show many, many times, both in geometry and gesture. So let me give you a little bit of background. Stan Tennant was born in 42, raised in a non-religious home in Brooklyn, New York, and has always been driven by, which I think most of us are, curiosity. Stan has this interesting ability to recognize patterns. He's a pattern um, amplifier, a, a pattern matcher. He has a BS in physics and holds numerous patents. In fact, I might ask him about a couple of the patents because he worked at a very famous company. I don't know whether he wants to mention the name of the company, but he did some interesting work there. Anyway, Stan is currently the director of research for the Meru Foundation, and we'll discuss what Meru is and how it got its name and what it does in a few moments. The book on the results of his last 30-plus years of research, actually much more, maybe going on 40, The Alphabet That Changed the World, How Genesis Preserves a Science of Consciousness in Geometry and Gesture, was published in 2011 by North Atlantic Books, my publisher, as you may note. Stan now lives and works with his wife, Lavana, in Marin County, California, where I understand tonight it's unusually warm, and the fact is, there is an El Nino coming. Stan, welcome to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. It's great to be on. It's great to finally have you on. It's been through some vicissitudes that we finally got you sitting in front of a microphone. Um, God, where do I want to begin? Where do I want to begin? Why don't you start by telling me from your perspective what you were doing in visiting Dr. Dolphin at SRI the day that we met? I don't actually remember, other than I was generally briefing him on what I had found, um, which was a pattern in a sequence of letters at the beginning of the Hebrew text of Genesis. Okay. So then let's jump in there. We've all read at one time or another Genesis. I mean, even people who are not Christians, people who are not Jews, people who are not anything, it's, it's one of the great books on the planet. You know, you have got to read Genesis in order to get a perspective on history, on culture, on who we are. Um, what, what, what began you, began you, that's a really terrible phrase. What, what began for you this curiosity about the text of Genesis and what might lie beneath the text? Well, I was working in Cambridge, Massachusetts as a physicist for a small optics company. And do we want to mention um, them? 
Block Engineering in Cambridge, Mass., also Block Research, Block Associates, which was their research arm. And I had a, a fight with the guy that ran the company, Myron Block, and he fired me. Hmm. And then the vice president hmm. entered the office and told him he couldn't fire me because he'd never given me a vacation. <laughs> so he had to wait until I took a vacation before he could fire me. So I took a vacation, and when I got back, of course, the, the, the issue had passed. Well, it turned out this was in August 1967, and in June 67, the Israelis and the Palestinians went, and the Egyptians and all went to war in the mm. June 67 war. I remember it well. And and when that announcement was made, all of a sudden, people from this company in Cambridge, Mass, started disappearing. And I found out that what Myron had done was hire people from Israel who were at MIT studying because they were cheap. You could pay them less, less than, than you have to pay people living here who demanded full salaries. So there was a whole team of is, is Israeli scientists and, and scholars who were working at MIT that block and hire. Kind of like one step, kind of like one step up from uh, grad student slave labor, as we all talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it, it was an angle. It, it worked. Everybody was happy, I guess. Anyhow, when the war broke out, these were senior people, and they were pilots, and so they immediately went out to. Logan Airport and flew to Israel and joined their units. Mm -hmm. And when they got back, um, a friend of mine said he decided to move to Israel and invite me to visit. And I said, sure, when I get a chance, I'll come and visit. And that had happened in June. In, in August, um, I got fired. And I had three weeks to do nothing. And I was single and had no responsibilities, plenty of money. I took the then still running New York Boston shuttle to Idlewild Airport. It wasn't Kennedy Airport yet. I think they changed it later. And I got on an LL flight, which was delayed all night in a rainstorm. It went to, to, to Paris and then it, it went to Tel Aviv. Um, it was a, a fantastic flight. It took twice as long as it should have. It was chaos, it was overcrowded. Um, everyone was fighting over the food. Um, I sat down next to some Christian missionary, and it was very quiet. But that was the only quiet spot on the, on the plane. Hmm. Anyhow, we arrived, and we were over the, 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 the French Alps, and the pilot comes on, and he says, we'll be landing at Lod Airport, it wasn't Ben Gurion yet, at 12.30.30. So I called the stewardess over and said, what does he mean, 12.30.30? And she says, he's going to land at 12.30 and 30 seconds. <laughs> I said, Okay. And then I look out the window, and I feel the plane. Not a flap moves. Nothing changes. He went on a glide path from northern Italy onto the tarmac and hit the ground at 12.30.30. Oh, my God. He, they'd just come back from a war. Wow. They, were, they, they thought they were still, you know, fighting something. They were, they were doing precision flying. Wow. Anyhow, it was, it was a crazy trip. I was, I was dead tired. I'm I got a cab. I said to the cabbie, take me to Jerusalem, of course. And he drops me at the gate nearest the western wall to the temple at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. It's, it's just becoming daybreak. The Israelis had just cleared the plaza. They'd taken possession of the area in June, and this was August, I think. And it was it was pretty quiet. And a guy comes up to me and he puts a cardboard hat on my head because I, I wasn't wearing a hat. And I'm walking towards to, towards the wall, and I'm I'm looking at the scene, 
and there were these very happy, very proud Israeli soldiers and citizens, and then there were very glum and, and upset-looking Palestinians. And it just flashed in my mind, you know, this isn't going to work. These folks don't like each other. Hmm. And so I made a spontaneous prayer. I said, I, you know, if there's anything I can do to, to let there be peace, let me know. And to, know, to let you know I'm serious, I'm not cutting my hair until there's peace. Which I only did once in a therapy session very early on because that's what they had me do. But I haven't cut my hair since the early 70s. So I get back to tour the country. Incredible situation. It was. It was. Um, they were still building the country. It was '67. It was pretty early on. Uh, get back east. Um, you mean back to Boston? And I get back to Boston, and I discovered that um, they're running these rerun episodes of The Prisoner, which was Patrick McGowan's series that was done ah, for the BBC. Yes. Yes. And it was this mystical thing about a village, and the guy gets kidnapped, and his spies. Well, there was only 16 episodes that they made for the BBC, but CBS needed 17 for the season. So they had to make an extra episode. So they filmed an, an extra episode of the Prisoner series without Patrick McGowan, without the star, without the village, without any of the sets, or the, or some, of the, some of the characters, but not many. And it was, it was called Do Not Forget, Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. It was a complete outlier. And in the middle of this, this program, up on the screen comes a code. And, and, and that triggered a thought in my mind. I don't know how or why. And I, it came into my mind, I've got to look at Genesis. I don't read Hebrew. Hmm. So I searched, I searched the house. I remembered they'd given me a copy of, um, of the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. The Hebrew English edition at the time of the Sonsino edition was popular. When you were in um, Israel, you say? No, this was when I got back. I, actually, uh, my my neighbor had given me oh, a okay, copy okay. Of, of the Hebrew Bible when I was by Mitzvah, and I'd never been back to the, the synagogue since. So I found I packed it away on the back steps in, in my apartment in, in Boston, and I dug it out, and it fell open to the first line of Genesis, and my eyes fell on the first line. Now, I don't didn't read Hebrew. I could read the alphabet. So my eyes fell on the letters. Now, you know... You mean, you, you, at, you, you, at, mean the, you mean the geometric shape of the letters themselves? I could read the letters one by one, A, B, C, D, Aleph, B, Gimel. I could recognize the names of the letters, but I couldn't read the language, the words I didn't know. The translation was there, but I, I, I couldn't read the Hebrew as a language. This is a sequence of letters. So my eyes fell on the letters. And that's why I saw there was intuitive. There was a pattern in the letters. So let me let me stop you there. Other people who could read the text wouldn't see the pattern of the letters because they see the words. Let me let me stop you. So you you go to Israel right after the '67 uh, war. You then right. come back. That obviously was some kind of a life changing experience. That whole that whole. Well, trip. I made a, I made this spontaneous prayer for peace. I didn't know I was doing that. I was at a holy spot. To the Western traditions, the, the last remnant of Solomon's Temple, and I said, "Let me do, let me help if I can help to make peace." So you get back to the later, states and you see this episode from the the prisoner, and in the episode, yeah, a year later, there it's the, a year later. It's, it's it, 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 almost to to the day I think this this added episode gets added to the series. Levana, do you remember it? Oh, sorry, I thought she was asking. So I. So you see, this, so you see this code, and then and suddenly, 
Genesis pops into your mind, having yeah, nothing to do... Yeah, that's the point do... I can't explain. The, the picture of the code on the McGowan show on television has nothing to do with the Genesis code. But the, seeing that, that code, which didn't exist when I was in Israel, they made that extra episode. Right. That, that triggered my thinking. It's just almost as if when I made that prayer, that episode came into existence, if you want to get really metaphysical. <laughs> okay. Now, I wasn't thinking any way like that at the time. And, so and w- you have a physics that. background. You don't have a linguistic or a code or an English or whatever. I have a BS in physics from what was Brooklyn Polytech. It's not part of NYU. A minor in math. It was a BS. It's worth nothing. Uh, I worked as a, as a physicist in electro-optics at Raytheon in Sylvania and this company, Block Engineering, General Laser, generally in the Boston area for quite a while. And then I had this experience. And So you have to root around in the house after this idea, Genesis, pops into your head. You have to go hunting for a copy of the Bible for the old Right. I, I, didn't have, I didn't know if I even had a copy. I found the, the, you know, an English King James someplace that was on the bookshelf. I didn't, didn't look at it either. And I found the, the Hebrew Bible that my neighbor had given me as a gift when I was by mitzvah that I had never opened. Oh. It was in a box that I had put stuff in when I moved from my parents. I'd never unpacked it. It was sitting on the back landing. Now, why, 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 when you thought, when you thought Genesis, why did you think I can't look at a King James English version? I have to go back to the original Hebrew. What made that connection in your mind? Well, there's a dozen, dozens of different English translations, and nobody agrees on it. There's only one Hebrew text. Okay, so as so a scientific, you're going to look you know, at a source. Yeah, it was, it was my sense of the, the translations. You, you wouldn't look at the translation of Shakespeare to look for coding in Okay, okay, I just want to clear that up. So I didn't know any of this. I was just curious. I, I, I was, it, was, it was just a thought. I, I, so, I, so I opened the, the, the text, and it falls open to the first line of Genesis. And, I, and you, you know if you can't read a language, like you, you're watching a, a video from, from Russia, and it says Aeroflot on the side of the plane, and you don't really know Cyrillic. You, you know the letters, but you don't know the, the language. You sort of dope them out. You can, you can compare them with the Aeroflot, and you can make it out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was doing with the Hebrew text. I was looking at the sequence of letters, and I noticed that some of the letters repeated themselves. So I got a bunch of backgammon chips and wrote the letters out on them and started making patterns of the letters in, in, always in, in, in the order in the text, but in, in, in different rows and columns and spiral patterns. And, and I, I spent a lot of time making meaningless patterns and I took Polaroid pictures of them. There was no computer at the time. And I, I got patterns that were suspicious. There's one that I, I have in my book that I show, which has six lobes to it and it's symmetrical. And eventually I refined that pattern and I realized, and I think it's, it's posted up on the screen on your website, um, I realized that it was a regular pattern. Do we do we know um, which which number it is? Let me look at the screen, and I'll tell you which one you find. Because for everybody who doesn't know where we're we're looking, you go to othersideofmidnight.com, go to the yeah, upper right hand corner, radio with pictures. Click on that. That will take you to tonight's guest page, and on tonight's guest page, I have a series of images, graphics from Stan's book, labeled one, two, three, et cetera, et cetera. So, which image should we be looking at? Image number two number is two. the first line of the text of Genesis. So we click on that. In the, begin- in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And if you look at that sequence of letters and you don't know the language, 
and you just notice the sequence, you find you can divide it up in, into four families. Okay. I'll use the English names. R, R, R and L, T and F, H and M, and B and Y. And they're, they're not exact cognates. And the reason they're paired, paired up like that is because those letters are in symmetrical positions in the alphabet. See, I was so desperate, I had no idea what was going on. I literally took a Rubik cube and wrote the letters of the alphabet on the Rubik cube. There's 27 cubies, if you count the one in the middle, you can't get to it, it's really just a hub. And there's 27 letters in the full alphabet. And when I did that, I realized that there were letters in mirror image positions. The R's were opposite the L's, the H's were opposite the N's, the T's were opposite the F's. And so I, I this is on this is on on the face of a cube. Yeah, this is this is number one on your pictures. Okay, on your website, and I took the symmetries of the alphabet on the cube, which it took me a long time to even think to do, and applied them to the first verse, and it divided the first verse into four separate clusters of letters: the R's and the L's. The Raish is the 201th letter, and the Lamed is the 102th letter in base 3. They're mirror image counts. Now, let so me ask you, let, you know, we already established, I think, that you kind of have had this hobby of looking at patterns and grokking an old Heinlein expression, that there's a meta pattern behind a pattern. What, what drove you to do all this work in a language you couldn't read on a, on a text that you didn't understand in Hebrew just focusing on the letters and began to arrange them in these strange, you know, like putting putting Hebrew letters on a cube is not something that everybody would do. In high school, I was on the math team, and I never never got to compete. I was, was not good enough. The captain of that math team turned out to be the last CEO of Metropolitan Life Insurance. That's the quality of people that I was surrounded by. I had, I wasn't in that league. But I had a, the teacher of that class, Abner Mendelssohn, was a person who had worked on the Manhattan Project, and then he was now he was a high school math teacher, and he was he was drilling the, the math team, and he taught us the techniques of visual pattern recognition. If you couldn't answer the question before the teacher had finished putting it on the blackboard, you never got to compete. You were mm. you were a loser. It, you had to get it back quickly. So I was primed to recognize visual patterns and, and to do these kinds of experiments. I had been drilled in it, and I was surrounded by people that really made you work. They were a lot smarter than me. So somehow, so I, I somehow, somehow in your subconscious, your, your pattern recognition sense, your spidey... My alarms went off and said that this sequence of letters doesn't make sense. This can't be only words. And the more I researched the history of the Hebrew alphabet and the history of the text and the Kabbalistic tradition and the Greek Platonic tradition and the related the Islamic and Sufi traditions, the more I, Christian parallels, the more I researched it, the more I realized that it was a valid thing to do. And when I started getting results, I was able to recognize what they represented eventually. Initially, I didn't know what I was looking at. You wouldn't tell that that from those that Rubik cube. And that first pattern of letters from the first verse, the, the, the next verse, the next part, the, 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 the number three, if you write the letters out on a bead chain in order and curl them up so they pair off as best you, and make it as tight as you can. So wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We want to now go to Radio with Pictures, 
Um, link number three. Click on Correct. that. And what what are we looking at here? It looks like uh, I don't know. We're looking at the sequence of letters in the first verse of Genesis, laid out in order on a spiral, on a torus, on a donut. Okay. And when you do that, they all pair off, and the pairing is so strong. Even though you don't know anything about the pattern or anything about the letters or anything about the purpose of the whole thing, the pattern is so strong that if you were to cover one letter, you could uniquely replace it simply by reference to the other letters in all but one case. So it looks like a code. It, exactly. You can't replace letters if there's not a pattern. <laughs> if, if it's determined, then it's, then it's a code. It's, now, it's, no, it's a right, meaningful pattern. Let me stop you there. Are you, in history, the first guy who's seen this code laid out in no. Hebraic letters? Who who was someone else no. that did this? I, I would assume this is how it was originally presented. The first word of Genesis, the Reishis, translated in the beginning, can also be translated by we, by means of a woven matrix, by means of a woven fabric. The text is a... The, is a textile. The patterns in Genesis were woven. In the ancient world, if you wanted to make hyperdimensional models, four-dimensional surfaces, you wove them. You got floppy sombreros. That's how you could research higher than three-dimensional forms in the ancient world without a without now, wait, wait, wait. You've taken a huge leap from our three-dimensional reality to hyperdimensions. How do we get there? And- well, I'm explaining how, how, they, how they came to do this. If you needed to model hyperdimensional forms, one way you could do it is by weaving and crocheting and, and that kind okay, of thing. Okay, okay. And Exodus tells us that to, to build, to make the Torah, they had to know how to weave, broke, what's the word? Weave and broader and brocade. Oh, okay. The text was woven. If you read the text, okay. the stories in the Bible tell you how to handle the text in the message. So basically, you're saying that in Genesis, you got you kind of got into the idea that there may be another set of messages in the text that wasn't the plain text, you know, in the beginning, etc., but actually depended on the letter positions themselves. Yeah, I'm saying that this is a a mathematical geometric form. It it, it unfolds, it's embryonic, it grows, it it unfurls, it's fractal. It's modeling a living system. It's been taught that the Torah is a a living thing, and this has qualities of a living system. It's self-embedded, it, it, it's, re, it's reflexive, uh, it has qualities of, of, of compactness, and it has geometric qualities that, that, are, that are essential for carrying information and preserving it. Okay, so and what, it's what you could, could have done in the ancient world. It doesn't require any mo- modern technique. So what happened next in your search? Well, I, I tried to make the pattern as compact as I could, and I got the pattern number four. Um, right next to it on, on your site, which is, let me pull it down. Link number four. Link number four. Excuse me? Yeah, click on link number four. Number four. And number four I call a Shushan flower. Shushan means six. It's a six-floret six flower. Three, three, three double florets. Three so it, double so, it, so it's a, it, it, is a Sushan flower. It's a cube. It, it, it's a, is, it a, is it also a six-petal flower? The cube is the matrix on which these six petals 
emerge. Okay. So if you go through the center of the cube to each face, you spiral out to each face, flip along the edge, and spiral back in. The, the, the two smaller drawings on the right and left show actual... At the, right at the, at the bottom, at the bottom, okay. And what you've got, and, and if you go in my book, there's something called the loss loss, which shows how you can unfold oh, uh, the platonic some, forms some, and embryonic form. Something called the what? Lahavsloth, L-A-H-A-V. And what it is is a sequence of of geometric forms that unfurl embryologically like an embryo. Point, line, surface, volume, hypervolume. And when you do that, you get the the five. You, you get other explanations for other discussions in Kabbalistic literature. We don't have to go there now. But what you what you get here is a way of looking at the first, the, the letters on that form, on the Shushan flower, are the letters of the first verse of Genesis in order. And as you can see, the opposite pairs are, are, are mirror images of each other. Each, each one is, is a reflection. So the sequence this is of a more, this is actually a, this, forming this box. This is a more elaborate version of your Rubik's Cube presentation. It's, it's not a Rubik's Cube. It's a, it's a hypercube or a cube octahedron. But it's related. Okay. And what, what you can what you can see from this is that if you connect the head and tail of the first verse, it's the, the, the forms are described as or, as an Ouroboros, a snake that eats its tail. Um, if you connect it up this way, you get mirror images on opposite sides. That's the the form that defines a torus and a three torus. A two torus is you, I'm getting a little tongue-tied here. To make a two-torus, you take a square. A two-torus is an ordinary donut. And you connect the left and right sides, which makes a tube. Then you connect the top and the bottom of the tube, and it makes a donut. Okay. Well, if you do that with, with, a, with six sides, with three pairs, you get left to right, top to bottom, and front to back. And when you do that, all the letters in the first verse are determined. They're paired up. And they 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 cluster in in this form. Okay, I tell you what, we're at now the bottom. The, the, the details are in the books. It, it's a little hard to do it on. No, no, no. And, and look, everybody's going to have to go and look at the Meru site, the, the Meru Foundation site, which is linked under. That's actually just above uh, Stan's bio tonight, and look at these. And it takes a lot of reading to begin to grok to grasp the magnitude. So let me read a couple of testimonials from the beginning of your work. These now go back decades. There's a I have one here from Joseph Schultz, PhD, who was Professor Emeritus of the Oppenstein Brothers Distinguished Professor of Judaic Studies at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. He said some years ago, Stan Tennant's discovery of the geometric forms and the mathematical symbols that lie behind the Hebrew letters in the text of the Hebrew Bible, is revolutionary, and its implications, once spelled out, could equal the importance of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and perhaps even surpass it. Um, just hold it there. We're, as I Can said, I make a, sum- a quick, sum- a quick summary statement. I'm saying that if you pair off the letters in the first verse of Genesis, it folds up into a form which we are going to shortly discover generates all of the letters used to write the text. The first thing you do in a code is to give the code. You, you give the keys. You, can, you, you, have, you have the starting point. The first thing you have to give when you, you, you have an alphabet is the letters. 
Yep. What we get from this this form is is a model hand, which when you make gestures generates all the Hebrew letter shapes. Okay, we will, so we, will, instantly, we, we will we will get into the hand stuff, but we do have to take a break here at the bottom of the hour. One other surprise tonight is uh, Bobby Bright, who is the gentleman, the um, songs song maker, the composer from Australia, who composed one of the alternate forms of our original um, uh, Other Side of Midnight theme. He also has sent us some remarkable music, a whole album, in fact. So we're going to be playing some of his music in the breaks tonight. This one you're going to want to listen to. You're on the Other Side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. For listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website the other side of midnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>